It can be very frustrating, can't it, when people keep changing the rules on you. Uh, I can remember growing up as a little boy playing cricket in the backyard with our neighbours and it always seemed to me, at least, that somehow the rules of the cricket game we were playing changed depending on who was batting. So when I batted, it was tip and run. When they batted, somehow it wasn't tip and run anymore. You could just hit the ball and just stay there. When I was batting and I hit the ball over the fence, I think the rule was uh, over the fence and out. When they were batting, over the fence was a six and a really good shot. At least that's how I remember the games. And I can remember being very irritated by this because isn't it frustrating when people just keep changing the rules on you? Now... Today's passage is all about, the heart of it, does God change the rules on people? Because if God is the sort of person who does that, it's going to add up to a very frustrating life experience. Life is going to be very uncertain if God keeps changing stuff on us. Now this comes up in Romans because of what we heard last week when the Apostle Paul explained that everyone, Jew, Gentile, remember Gentile is a non-Jew, everyone without distinction is under sin and therefore everyone without exception can only be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus gave up his life as the price for our redemption. He took a punishment that we should have received and when we in faith and when we trust God and accept What Jesus did, God pardons our sin. It was fantastic news that we heard last week. But back in the day when Paul was writing this, if you were a Jew listening to that good news last week, it could almost be interpreted as a fickleness on God's part. Why, after all those promises in the Old Testament about Israel being God's chosen nation and Israel being God's treasured possession, why, after all those promises, God now turns around and gives the opportunity for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, to be saved? How come you don't have to be a Jew anymore in order to be one of God's people? How come all you have to do is receive in faith what Jesus has done? That sounds like God's being a little two-faced here. He said one thing in the Old Testament, he's doing another thing in the New Testament. He's changed the rules on us. Now, we're not Jews asking that sort of question, but at its heart there's a really important issue here to get straight. Can you trust God? That's That's the heart of the issue here. Is God just on a whim going to change things? Because if he does that, that's a scary thought. Life will become a pretty uh, sick joke if God is the sort of God who just changes the rules on us all the time. Well, in today's reading, Paul wants to argue that God has not changed anything. Remember chapter 1, Paul's big point, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he's just explained a very important part of the gospel last week. And now he wants to say, I'm not ashamed of, uh, of the fact that we're saved by faith in Jesus, even if the Jews do want to infer that it uh, has, says something about God's inconsistency. I'm not ashamed of it because God has not been inconsistent at all. Chapter 3, verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? 
No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Now this is following hot on the heels of last week. Paul is very much going on the front foot here and he's saying, look, in case you haven't heard me, we're saved by faith, not by the Old Testament law. We're saved by trusting in what Jesus does for us, not by keeping the Ten Commandments in the Old, Test- in the Old Testament. It's not about being a Jew that anyone is saved. Verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Now, you'd be excused for thinking that Paul is actually digging a bit of a hole for himself here and all this stuff about drawing attention to the fact that the Old Testament law never saved anyone and how God is now is also the God of Jews and Gentiles. You'd be starting to think that this is only going to prove the point for the Jews that God has been a bit fickle. The argument takes a turn at verse 31. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. I... Uh, uh, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefathers, discovered about this matter? Now, seeing how it runs, chapter break is a little unfortunate. makes you think he's changing topics somewhat here. He's not. It's still in line with this whole argument. God's not changed the rules. He's always been saving people by faith. And so to the Jews who think that God may have changed the rules, to the Jews who think that this somehow nullifies the law, in other words, now that all the Old Testament is, is null and void, now all the stuff about being Israel is irrelevant because what's going on now is completely different to what happened before. Uh, Paul says, no, no, no. Let's have a think about Abraham. Let's have a consideration of how he was saved. And so it is, we're, for the rest of the chapter, it's all about Abraham. Why Abraham? Because he's the father of, Jew, of all the Jews, uh, as we read in, in, in Genesis. It was with Abraham that Israel started. God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. He'd bless Abraham's descendants, make them his own special people. That people turned into Israel. It started with Abraham. So if Paul can show the Jews that even Abraham was saved by faith... That is a very good argument of, uh, uh, to show that, that God has been comp- completely consistent. The precedent of Abraham is very powerful. So what shall we say about Abraham? How was he saved? Well, Paul firstly points out what didn't save Abraham. And to argue this, he quotes a particularly important verse in Genesis that we read earlier about Abraham, and the first point he wants to make from the verse is that Abraham was not saved out of any sense of obligation from God. Verse 3, what does the scripture say? God believe, uh, sorry, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Paul here is picking out a critical Old Testament verse. It's Genesis 15, 6 that we read earlier talks about how Abraham was considered right before God in terms of righteousness being credited to him, which is probably the reason why Paul has picked on this particular verse to talk about because the Jews read that word credited and they argued that that implies that Abraham earned his righteousness. Paul wants to argue, not at all. The use of that word doesn't prove a thing. 
because you can actually have something credited to you in two different ways. Think about your bank account. Okay, Money can be credited into your bank account in two different ways, two basic ways. Firstly, your pay can go into that. That's money you have earned. You're entitled to that money. You worked hard for it. But money can also go into your account a different way. When a friend unexpectedly puts it there. When a family member puts it there because they just want you to have it as a gift. If you'd like to do that, my account details I have with me and you can see me over. (laughs) Paul is saying it's that second way that Abraham was credited with righteousness. Verse 4. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now you see the argument? The person who believes God like Abraham did, his righteousness is credited to him, not out of obligation like a wage, but as a gift. The use of that word credited doesn't prove a thing. It's quite consistent with Abraham being saved by faith. In fact, add to that the fact that Abraham wasn't saved by being circumcised either. Verse 9, is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised, that is, the Jew or the Gentile? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Well, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Now, you see, the Jews took pride in the symbol of circumcision. It was the physical symbol of being one of God's people. And so they considered that by virtue of having that symbol, they were saved. They were the privileged one. Circumcision was a seal. It was a, it was a symbol of their place in heaven. Paul's point is that circumcision couldn't have had anything to do with Abraham's righteousness because he was not even circumcised at the time it was credited to him. Verse 10, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It wasn't after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The precedent of Abraham shows that being circumcised, being a Jew, didn't earn him righteousness before God. It was simply a sign that he received after he'd been credited as righteous. He's on a bit of a roll. This time it's the Old Testament law that he sets his sight on because as well as circumcision, the Jews prided themselves as the custodians of God's law, the Ten Commandments, all that sort of stuff. They were the privileged one who, to whom God had spoken. They were the privileged one that, to whom God had given his law. We've got the law. we got God's law. Hey, we got God's law. Used to boast about it all the time. Paul's point is, so what? Simply having the law doesn't put anyone right with God. All the law does is highlight sin. Verse 13. It's not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he could be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, this is an interesting argument. He could have gone the whole circumcision argument and said, well, you know, Abraham was considered righteous before God, before the law even popped up. But he goes down a different track here. 
And it's the idea that things like the Ten Commandments were given to Israel so as to show Israel how sinful they were and to force them onto God's mercy. Without the law, you see, they probably would have thought they were doing okay, but the Old Testament law shows them that they weren't. It's like going out for a picnic and running through a grassy park and having a great time and thinking you're really enjoying yourself until you see the sign that says no walking on the grass. And suddenly you realise you've actually been doing the wrong thing all along. That was the effect of God giving the law to Israel to actually show them how bad they were so that they wouldn't be inflated and overestimate how good they were. He gave them the law to humble themselves so that they would throw themselves on his mercy. And Paul is bringing it up here to make the point that having the law didn't save Abraham. The law actually highlights sin. There's no way it could have brought righteousness. Wrap it together. Precedent is clear. Abraham, the father of Israel, he wasn't saved out of a sense of obligation by God. He wasn't saved by being circumcised. He wasn't saved by having the law. He wasn't saved by doing anything. So what did save Abraham? Verse 16. Therefore, which makes you think he's getting to the point of his argument, the promise comes by faith so that it might be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. Abraham received righteousness and blessing from God by faith. He was put right with God simply because he believed God. He took God at his word. Now, as we've heard earlier, the story behind that verse in Genesis that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, the story behind that is, of course, that although Abraham and his wife were very old and they'd been childless all their married life, despite that situation, God told them that they would give birth to a great nation, which is pretty laughable, really. In fact, Sarah did burst out laughing when she heard the news. God promised an elderly, childless couple that they would give birth to an entire nation. But Abraham believed him. Verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Despite how unlikely it seemed, Abraham said, God... I don't know how you're going to do this, but I know you can do this. I'll trust you. And because of that trust, verse 23, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, it's a bit of a challenging section, isn't it? There's a bit of assumed knowledge from the Old Testament. There's a bit of a logic thing happening here. Are you seeing how it fits? Paul told us last week the exciting news that everyone, Jew and Gentile, can be saved 
by receiving in faith what Jesus has done on the cross. For the Jew, this is a problem. Sounds like God has changed the rules a little bit on how people get saved. Surely in the Old Testament, people are saved by being Jews. Well, no, Paul says today, even in the Old Testament, even with Abraham, Israel's great patriarch, God has always been saving people by faith. And so as to prove it, he has now picked out a key verse about Abraham and he has shown that God didn't credit righteousness to Abraham out of a sense of obligation, but as a gift. God didn't credit righteousness to Abraham because of circumcision, because he wasn't even circumcised at the time. And he did not credit righteousness to Abraham because of the law, because all the law does is actually highlight sin rather than pardon people. Abraham was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he'd promised. That's what saved him. It was faith. It's always been faith. And what's true of Abraham, true of us. Verse 23. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us. To whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now here in these last couple of verses are where you and I fit into the passage most overtly. Because all this stuff that we've been talking about Abraham, it's not just written about him, it's not ancient history, it's for us as well. It has relevance to how we're saved because at its most basic, Abraham received his righteousness by trusting God's promise the promise that was given to him. He didn't earn it. He simply trusted God's promise to give it to him. And that is exactly, at its most basic, how we are saved as well. We are saved when we believe what God promises us. Now, we're not Abraham, so God has promised us something slightly different. Specifically, what he's promised, verse 25, is that Jesus was delivered for our sins and was raised for our justification. The promise we are to believe in is that Jesus willingly accepted the punishment that was ours to pave the way for God to pardon us. And if you believe that, do you believe it? If you believe that, if you take God at his word, the extraordinary word that no matter what you have done, no matter how many times you have done it, if you trust God's promise that that will all be wiped clean because of Jesus' death on the cross. If you trust him about that, it sounds extraordinary, but if you trust him, he will gift you, he will, he will give you righteousness and it will all be wiped clean. Which is exactly the lesson he gave us last week, really. But he has no qualms about repeating it. Because he's not ashamed of the gospel. And he wants us to know that we are saved by a faithful God keeping his promises to us. Because remember, in one one sense, this whole argument is just a defence of God's trustworthiness. It's an explanation that God has not changed the rules about anything. Which is all the more reason to trust him. He doesn't change the rules. He is faithful and consistent and reliable and the implications, my friends, of that are enormous. Because when people are untrustworthy, 
when things are unreliable, that will bring a world of pain into your life. You probably saw recently on the news that story about that high-rise factory in uh, Bangladesh that collapsed. Over a 1,000 people died. Five people have been arrested over that because they've discovered that the building had been illegally built, uh, built over a pond. And all they'd done is fill the pond up with sand for a foundation. What is going through their head? I'm not an engineer, but even I can see that that's not going to give you a good foundation. And if you don't build stuff on a good foundation, if you don't build stuff on a reliable foundation, bad things will happen. How much more our lives? How much more our lives? What are you building your life on? What are the foundations that you are putting down? Where is the security in your life? Where, where are you looking to to feel safe? Okay, now a lot of us look to our friends. A lot of us look to our marriages. That is where we feel secure. That is where we want to be special. And others look to our children and our families. That's where our stability comes from. A lot of us look to our jobs, our careers. A lot of us look to things that we, we, we feel we're gifted at. Musical ability. Sporting ability. And often that's the sort of stuff we construct our lives around. And they are the things that we use to draw our self-confidence from and our self-worth from and our self-identity from and our security to go out and face life from. And the trouble is every single one of them can be incredibly fickle. And they, they are certainly beyond our control. How are you actually going to cope if your marriage partner does not love you very well in the end? How are you going to deal with it if your friends actually let you down and aren't there for you? How are you going to cope if your, if your career takes a nosedive and you perhaps even lose your job? How do you deal with an accident that takes away your ability to play music or play sport? Friends, if we, if we build our life on those sorts of things, life can turn out to be very difficult to cope with. Putting faith in the unfaithful can tear your heart out. Putting faith in a faithful God that's a different story. Being fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised, that's a firm foundation. That is an anchor which will hold in any storm. I'll pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that when we put our trust in you, that you'll actually forgive us because of what Jesus has done. Thank you that we can trust you in that promise. Father, we pray that it is from your reliability 
that we will draw our security and our safety and our self-worth and our identity and all those things that we're tempted to get from other parts of life. Father, please open our eyes this morning from your word and through your spirit so that we might see how utterly reliable you are and rejoice and be comforted in it. Amen.